Welcome to Mandy, the ABA and Aditi, the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones, from two cultures, two allied health fields, offering two very different perspectives. Yet, we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Hello, everybody, OTs, ABAs, RBTs, students, educators. We have some speech therapists and psychologists recently. So welcome, everyone, to our collaborators. This is our seventh episode where we're going to talk about the what and how of evidence-based practice. And take it away, Mandy. I'm really excited to say that we have Dr. Josh Pritchard with us today. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself in a minute. Josh is going to be talking to us about what evidence-based practice is, the difference between single case designs and and group designs, and a whole lot of other things, including reviewing an OT study. Thanks so much for being with us, Josh. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, uh, Mandy, I just want to tell you how when I first met Josh, do you know what struck out to me? Josh, I met you at a conference. And he was the most well-dressed, three-piece suit person I had ever seen. And I was like, who is that? And then I was introduced to him. And of course, he owns a fit learning lab. So that's how we sort of connected. Yeah. And he was one of my lecturers. So all the way from across the other side of the world, I knew him before fit learning, one of my favorite lecturers at FIT. And um, then then I find out he's part of fit learning and I'm like, how awesome is this? So it's, um, yeah, it seems like a, a really great way to talk about, Josh, you know, what evidence-based practice is. But to start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you got to be where you are today, a director of Fit Learning? Okay. So I was, I actually went to undergrad in marine biology. So I'll tell you my brief but rambling route. Uh, I did that my my uh, between summer between junior senior year in marine biology I went to Peru and did research for a summer had a blast and then realized it wasn't what I wanted as a career so came back switched gears psychology was interesting to me I grew up on a facility for children and so I watched uh, my parents worked there I, I watched that impact people And I was interested from a scientific perspective, though, about psychology. So I got in and found myself in many of the classes arguing with my other students or or professors of, I think we could be scientific if we just took into consideration variables and started plotting this research study that would prove that psychology could be a science. Because many times they were arguing it was more art. And that's when they put me in touch with, you sound like this guy down the hall and then they told me to go down there and I walked in and it was uh, Jose Martinez Diaz and so I was like I have this idea that there's you know we could predict what would happen if we knew you know it was coming before and he's like <laughs> that's behavior analysis <laughs> right, and, um, right. So after that the rest was history I kind the of rest is- pivoted into that field was um, a TA or GA for him and uh, then since I've been in a variety of populations in various locations in the um, states and the, and globally doing things with that science and trying to help in a variety of, of ways. So the one thing I will say about Josh in general, very altruistic. Every, I mean, from the minute I met him, he's always trying to help Josh. You are always so helpful. And 
definitely I see that across the board and that's why we were like hey come on our podcast help us solve this problem of how OTs and ABAs manage research so I know you've worked with OTs I think you told me you had a clinic and you had some OTs working for you at some point mm-hmm. so how's that experience yeah so I remember when I was my first like semester into the field. I was a shadow, they call my position a shadow in an early intervention, uh, early start preschool. And I met an OT there. I, I remember that briefly that, oh, that's a thing. And that's about all I knew at the time. I then had a lot of different experiences consulting on cases or being in, you know, adjacent while they were doing work with learners with autism. I was told often in some of our, in my coursework and my studies, some of what they do may not have, you know, research behind it. And there was some, you know, critique of this philosophy or that philosophy. So that was kind of growing up in the profession, my experience. I then left, when I got my BCBA, I was brought to a facility in Kentucky. It was under a Department of Justice lawsuit for failure to deliver active treatment. And so I, they were bringing in teams to try to rectify that. And so they were doing national recruitment and paid pretty well. And I thought, that sounds interesting. My title was interdisciplinary team leader. And it was a 27-house uh, facility with varying degrees of disabilities. It's called ICFMR. And the homes that I, I was assigned were the more behaviorally intense. And... On that, uh, in, in that job, that was my first experience of having to direct an OT or getting to direct an OT in that uh, I had a whole team and I had to get, my job was to make sure everybody at the table, and that included an OT, SLP, uh, nutrition, or dietitian, a nurse, an MD, psychiatrist. I was the psychologist component, the house manager, all of that group, which quite diverse in terms of their philosophies and their perspectives. We had to develop a plan for each individual and we had to pull together instead of kind of pulling apart. So I learned my, what I learned to do there was learn each of those professions and what, you know, where they were coming from. So I could understand how to, we, we all had one goal really. It was to help our, my home was men. So help our men. However, it was, there were times that we might think there's better ways to do it than each other, etc. So we'd have some arguments around that. That was my very first one. The one I was most impacted by was in I was consulting in and starting a clinic in South Africa and would go there for every quarter for about a week, train, and my first time I went there at the end of that week, I worked there was an OT working there and an SLP. The SLP had worked with BCBAs before. And I got there and did it. At the end of it, the OT, she was pretty soft-spoken. The family was asking, like, oh, what did you guys think about Josh? And, and she was like, well, in my school, we were taught that ABA people were bad and we should avoid them. And you're, you weren't that. And that was the first time I've ever encountered somebody that, that wasn't. And I was, that was pretty shocked. I was surprised. No, a, I was, my first thought was like, wow, you've heard of us? Um, it was like, huh, I didn't even know. But and then if you look at, if you contextualize that with our, the size of our field, and especially that was about a decade ago, we were really small to have made that big of a splash that they noticed. And that made me kind of sad that, you know, I've never met an OT. Well, I'll, 
I'm sure there's a few people that are just not great people, but I've not met, you know, OTs in general that aren't just delightful people. And in fact, that's probably my more characteristic, I'm, I'm comfortable generalizing, is largely I found that that, that profession seems to self-select people that are, are just really uh, fun and, and delightful is the best word I can use. The fact that that group was warned made, you know, I didn't like that. Uh, that was my, my, I guess, most impactful. And then I do have a clinic where we employ OTs up in the northeastern area. And so we've got a really cool uh, a doctoral level OT that's kind of driving it. And then she has her team under. Wow. So, so you're an example of how collaboration can work. And I think that one encounter you had with that OT really changed her perception, right? Like, so one person, one ABA, one OT can really make that difference. So that's brilliant. That's exactly what we're about. So great. But I'm curious, did um, research ever come up as an issue, you know, with sensory or any of these OT strategies that you guys may have used or were recommended? Not too often. And my position, I'll probably maybe dive more into it as we have some other questions. But whether I think that the philosophy undergirding like sensory integration, if that makes sense or not to me, is less important than if I've got a team member that says, I have this idea. And we might walk through and say, okay, I'm less familiar. Can you tell me more about that? If it doesn't have a database that I'm comfortable saying, let's do it. I feel like my role at that point should default into let me help identify if it's helpful for this person in front of us. And so I've done a lot in that space where someone says, I want to do, you know, this intervention. The sensory diet's a good example. I want to do a sensory diet and here's, here's what. And I said, okay, well, and, and the goal that my, my position shifts because I'm not the, especially then a lot of times I'm a collaborator, not the team leader. So even then I'm like, okay, that's interesting. What can I do to help make that better for the person in front of us? And, and generally that's, I can help pinpoint things that, that that's supposed to change and then see if it does and get a sense of when we expect that change to happen. And I've had a number of colleagues in a variety of professions that had this idea that I might've internally thought that's a little kooky, but why not? And sometimes those things have really been impactful for the learner. And I can defend them because I now have the data. Like that was the, the my value add there was that, yep, this did actually work. I don't understand why. And now I have a thing to chase down that's interesting to me. Or I've got data that this isn't working and we should adjust. And I think the thing there that I would talk to, this is at, directed at my BACB credential colleagues, we also have things in our toolbox that we that our literature base that will not be effective for the person in front of us. And while we I think it's really important when we are working with collaborators and we say, "Hey, I can help you decide if that works." It needs to be in the spirit of I can help you decide if that works, not I'm pretending to help you so I can prove you wrong because I've seen that show up and Depending on how snarky I am at the moment, I'm, I often think, you know, I can remember two intervention, behavioral interventions you just tried with a, a consumer that did not work and we adjusted. And that's the science, not that whatever I bring to the table first is right. It's I bring a, a method around whatever we're going to do. We're going to measure the outcome of it. And if the outcome is aligned with what we want, we do it. If it's not, we adjust until we get it right. And I think that should be our role in helping evaluate our 
collaborators is, is not to prove wrong, but to say, well, let me shine light on this so that we are making faster decisions in both veins. So that's been, I think I rambled a little bit, but that's kind of my thoughts around how to best support a team in that regard. Mandy, did you want to add to that with your experience and talk about evidence-based practice? Yeah, I think, uh, gosh, you know, Josh has got a really amazing experience in that kind of collaboration. I think possibly my experience has been where I have overseen all the programming and so and particularly, you know, with children with really severe and challenging behaviours, so you are you know, intensively intervening at, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week and then um, collaborating with an OT that might be, come up with some strategies, but they're only, you know, providing 45 minutes a week of service. So, you know, that's my experience kind of different, I guess, in that I kind of had more control over the interventions that were being recommended. But I think the message is the same in that, I've always been really open to input that an OT might have. I think I've just been the same thing. I just want to be really clear about what the goals are in providing the intervention, which that's where I've always been challenged is that things like, for instance, in particular, I've had a lot of experience with OTs wanting to provide skin brushing on a, you know, a schedule of like hourly or half hourly skin brushing. Which, you know, there's a lot of challenges that come up with that because it can be really interfering <laughs> to sessions. But getting, um, really clear sort of feedback from Notea on what that is, um, hoping, you know, to achieve. That's where, you know, I've been challenged in the past in that, okay, what are we expecting the outcome to be by providing this intervention? What is the specific behavior that we are targeting for improvement or reduction? Oh, yeah, and that's been my real challenge. But I'm b- being open to it. That is like, you know, let's see what we can do. The challenge is when you're working 30 hours a week with a client, you're f- you're making daily changes to behavior protocols often. And obviously, as behavioralists, we only want to change one thing at a time. So, yeah, that's been my challenge. Okay, we're going inter- to introduce skin brushing, but this is in, you know, this is a, an intensive intervention. Are we going to do this in our sessions as well as in OT sessions? Are parents going to incorporate this intervention as well? What data are we going to take? So, yeah, that's that's been my challenge in the past, but I've definitely had success in working openly with OTs to say, okay, you know what? We're prepared to try that because a parent is really supportive of this intervention. They want to trial it. Let's see how we can do it effectively, consistently across our sessions and yours with parent support and parent input. And let's just see what we're attempting to improve. That's the real challenge when you've got a lot of people involved trying to yeah. collect, collect data and be consistent and, you know, treatment integrity around the intervention that's been my challenge in the past. I think Josh has had a lot more experience at that, you know, that challenge. How have you gone, Josh, with having OTs kind of collect data for you? Is that? So that's probably the place I'm, depending on who. And, and I think that's also if I'll put a caveat on when a lot of what I was doing was I wasn't, when I was a team leader, that was, I, I was fully responsible for this better be right or it's, it's my fault. When I'm not in that role, I'm like, here's my value add. I also think if it's my clinic and I'm I'm providing the ancillary services too around whatever my, like if AB is my core, 
I can certainly set values around that and say, this is our value system. I have a colleague who did that. She has, she had, so she's a BCBA, but she also had SLPs, APAs, SLPAs, OTRs, all that around. And she created the rules of, we can do anything if you bring research and show me pros and cons and risks and we can understand. And she had an OT came and I wanted to do brushing, I think was one that, that she had said. And and that was the, the ask then was, okay, I just need to understand it's not my area, so bring me the literature so I can read about it. And one of the, I guess the studies indicated there's a risk if it wasn't consistent, like delivered consistently. And so that was the question that was next to the team was, how can this be done consistently according to that? And if not, are we you know risking the outcomes that this study showed? So I think if that's your, if it's your clinic, you can set that value system and then be consistent and that's okay. I don't know that we have to always work with everybody all the time. I think we need to be real clear about here's our values. I do think collaboration is a, a good value for someone to have, for sure. But yeah, that would forgot where I was going with that. But that that's kind of my thought on yeah on how to do. So you, do that. so you probably raised a really good point then, Josh. And um, the title of this podcast is you know the what and how of evidence based practice. So this is terminology that's thrown around a lot, right? Evidence-based practice, not just in our field, but, you know, in education, et cetera. Can you tell us, you know, what does that actually mean, evidence-based practice? Well, I think it doesn't <laughs> answer at the moment. <laughs> yeah. um, there's, so, yeah. there's several kind of warring factions on what, you know, this is what that means, that's what that means. I'm going to give you sort of a macro level, and then there's going to be an asterisk of and, and it kind of means what it means to you, which it, as – Analyst, we I struggle with lack of precision and definitions, so this is one of those. But I think, well, what it, what it means is that there is evidence behind the technology that's being you know deployed to solve this problem. What the question is around that is what evidence, what counts as evidence, what amount of evidence is enough, what about counter evidence, you know, all of those things. That's where the arguments generally lies. It has to be a randomized you know group design. If, and if you don't have that, that doesn't count. So it depends on what your metric is on what you're going to consider evidence. Now, in, in the behavior analytic science, the bulk of our research is going to be non-group based. So it's it's a single system approach. So there are people that would say nothing in ABA is evidence-based because it's all, except for Lovas's groups, you know, 87 study was group, but most everything else. Now, we are seeing some out of the... Um, Justin Leaf's group, they're starting to do some randomized control trials, which is good. But that's one of the things that if your truth criterion is you've got to have group design, well, then we won't meet that because that's not our game. But that's that's sort of the difference, I think. So it means that there is an evidence base behind the technology. What that counts for is what is, is different. So, Josh, you put up a really good point there. And for some of our listeners that are listening, they know exactly what you're talking about. Some may not have heard that discrimination before between a single case design and a group design. So can you start uh, just by telling us what a single case design is and why the field of behavior analysis, you know, uses that those types of studies? Okay. Yeah, sure. So, and I'm going to re, I'm going to call it single system. They're often used synonymously, but I like, I like system because what the single system or case design approach is, is it takes a single unit 
Many times it's a person. Sometimes it's a setting or a small group of people, but they're treated as a unit. And it uses that unit as its own control, which means in the logic of of scientific analysis, you want to change a thing, your independent variable, you want to change it. And then you want to see the thing that you're measuring. Does it change if and only if that first thing changed? And when you see that change, the first time you see that change is promising. You say, ah, I think I got something. You then need to change it either back or change it to something else. And then does your measurement also change if and only if? And when you see those changes, that tells us we've got more and more confidence that the result of what I did is this outcome I'm seeing. It's not chance. It's not some other intervening variable. In group design, the way and so you in, in single case, you control that by only changing one thing at a time and changing it in specific patterns to eliminate or minimize randomness or confound. In a group design, you do the same kind of control, but the way you control is you take averages of the measurement across the, each group, and then you compare those and you look use statistical analysis. And so you're looking for a statistical significance. The critique and the reason behavior analysts hold to a single system design is that we don't do statistical analysis. So some might think it's because we don't like math, but really it's about <laughs> it's about what we say is our, our threshold of this is valuable as a as a, for the person in front of us, for instance. And I we uh, Aug actually I think coined the term interocular trauma. Uh, in other words, does is it such a significant difference on this visual graph that it hits you right between the eyes, and you don't have to run stats. If it's not big enough to see on the on the chart, it's probably not big enough for the person to care about. That's the one of the big differences is in a group design, especially when you start averaging, I can find statistical significance of something I did. And I could potentially ask everybody in that group and they could all say, that's not, it didn't do anything for me. And so when you shift out of that into a single system design, we can't say that, you know, it went from 50 to zero per minute. That's a big change of whatever it is that we're counting. Big change. And we would see that and there'd be no question that it was clinically significant as well as statistically. The other reason is we are an inductive approach. So that's sort of bottom up. We want to gather lots of data and look at it and discover patterns versus a hypothetical deductive approach, which is sort of top down come up with a theory and then try to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, then it's uh, you know good. Those are two different ways to approach research questions. And so single system design is not super great for hypothetical deductive. It's better for an inductive approach. So I think all of those combine, that's why we do it. The weaknesses there is that some of our technology may have only been, you know, quote unquote, proven on three people because... That was a, a three-person study they did a, across people. Bam, that worked. But if you aggregate the number of data points and, and focus less on how many organisms and focus more on how many times things were measured, the single case or single system uh, designs are going to have a whole bunch more, like an order or two of magnitude more data points or observations. So again, there's some power in that. And if you think about power analysis, often in group designs, like how many? We just did vaccine studies with 40,000 people. 
that gives us power. They needed 150 people to get the COVID to know, to then be able to do the analysis. That's that power analysis. So if we, if we took the same, turn it on its head, instead of saying how many people, but we say how many data points are there, if we need 150, that can be easily captured with two or three folks if you're doing a time series. So, so can I just uh, talk about OT here? Because I think that that's one of the things that I haven't seen much of is that single case design in OT. Yet on the other side, I hear a lot of, well, you know, uh, it's not a homogenous group with sensory because there's so much variation. So that's one of the limitations of research. So I don't know why we have not adopted more of the single study design. And maybe it's because that we have a different approach, more of a top down, I guess. What do you think? My guess, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is the logistics of doing single subject design. It's a pretty heavy lift in terms of labor. So I think right there is a barrier in the first place. So you better really value it if that's if you're going to now have to, to get over that hump. And I think that we've been, that's been one of the hallmarks of behaviorists is we're a little wacky in that we've we've decided we like it this way we're inductive and, and that's sort of we we thrive on that's what we do because we think it's better i think the rest of that like medicine's often done in group all the other kind of medical social sciences tend to be doing group the you know where you get single case or single system is going to be physics and chemistry frankly everybody else tends to do group and i think that's because before behavior analysis or before you know watson skinner got involved psychology was sort of focused on averages and then that iterated out to all human and social sciences i'm not sure psychology started that but that i think that's in coming across all of those so you got that that's the norm that's much more efficient in terms of of doing a study i can do a lot more quicker if i am doing snapshot measures of groups and then averaging them and then i think I also think statistical analysis grew and became sort of a mark of good science to people and, and folks started you know pursuing that. I think all those together did that. The other thing that's I've considered some studies of how would I support if someone's like, I want to look at sensor integration. And if we did that, one of the from my understanding, the philosophy underneath how why it works is that it's it's changing the physiology. You can't do a reversal there. So some of the single case design models don't fit that. Now, there are some that would, so not it's not impossible. But I think that's also a component is we believe that behavior is malleable and things will change. So we can put things in and take things away and watch what happens. If the model is that this is a physio change, that's not going to be as malleable. So I think I'm guessing all that, all that speculation. I, don't, I didn't talk to somebody, so that's what I think. But So that's interesting because I, I don't have a lot of experience um, with single case design in the OT world. I did sort of get a glimpse of it when I was at FIT doing my certification in ABA. I, I'm just curious, is what's its applicability to the general public, I guess, as you phrased it, the findings, what, you know, can we really generalize that to a larger group if it's a single case? Yeah. So I think the the thing to look at is what each of the tools are for. The single case design is good for the development, refinement, make more efficient a technology. 
and then you can extrapolate that. I think this will work for many. The group design actually is good for telling the uh, effectiveness and, and does it in fact work for most people. And then hopefully, if, if I were designing that research program, I would then reticulate those findings back to the single case for refinement. So for instance, if I have figured this thing out that I like, and I like to go to medicine and pre- like for these descriptions, if I have a pill that I think is going to work and I I bake it and make it work in single case and I test it with one person and see how it works, tweak, tweak, tweak till I think I got it. Then I bring it to the group design and I roll it out and out of 100 people, 50 do. Now I've got something to chase. Why did the other 50 not? And I can start to explore that, bring it back to single case and refine. And I think those interactions between those tools would be most powerful. We're starting to see some of that in behavior analysis. There are some RCTs that are getting started. But yeah, it's applicable. It's proven more applicable at the group design. That would be sort of where you would then take it and say, boom, this works for X percentage of the population with these characteristics. I don't think we have a lot of training in that, so in, in our field. So, This episode of the ABN OT podcast is brought to you by Fit Learning Chicago, London and Perth, Australia. For more than two decades, Fit Learning has been combining the best of behaviour, cognitive and neuroscience to create one highly effective teaching methodology to transform children's cognitive and academic skills to create cognitively fit learners. They rapidly accelerate children's memory, attention, concentration and agility such that they can learn new skills effortlessly at school and beyond. They are known for reducing one to two years' growth in as little as 40 hours. A fit comprehensive skills assessment can determine areas for growth that will transform a child's learning. See www.fitlearners.com and www.fitlearning.com.au to learn more about their program. So, Josh, can I just um, bring you back to our uh, last topic that we presented on? It was um, Patrick Fryman's bedtime pass. I call it his bedtime pass. There was a, a number of researchers involved in that initial study. But just to make it real for people, because we did talk specifically about that intervention, that was what you know behaviorists would call an ABAB design. Just to make it real for people out there that sort of haven't had a lot of exposure to single case designs, can you just explain to us how that would work? So that was a bedtime pass. So the A in that would have been baseline data, I think, on um, number of wakings at night or leaving the bedroom. And then so the B then would have been the introduction of the bedtime pass. So this is obviously an intervention that can be then withdrawn because Mm -hmm. uh, this would have been done with parents in the home. So the second baseline, can you just tell us how that would then work? Yeah. So they would then go back to no bedtime pass and see you know, what happens, kiddo most likely is going to be out of the room a lot more. So you see a rise in the thing that you were hoping to see go down. Potentially. Yeah. You reintroduce the bedtime pass. Now, one of the controls there would be make sure each of those, so maybe do three days baseline, five days with intervention. And then your next one, bring that back to like one or two days. And because there could be an argument, well, maybe just every three days, people stop getting out of the bedroom, right? So you adjust all the things so that there's, you can just eliminate any argument of a confound. And uh, so you just reverse that. And and each time you reverse it, if that change, so if it were, he was having an average of five every day leaving, we put the bedtime pass and went to zero. And then when we removed it, went back up to five. That's a pretty strong evidence that the bedtime pass is what made the leaving the room go down. 
It wasn't something else. He didn't, it wasn't maturation. He didn't get old enough and now he's just not worried or it wasn't any of that. Um, so you can use those. That's a, with re- a reversal or withdrawal design is often called that. If it's, it's kind of motivational, that's kind of the way I, I phrase that. If it's something that they're learning, that's a permanent change. You can't, so if instance, I'm teaching like you read, I can't rating. undo it. Yeah. 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 yeah, I can't undo it. I can't be like, okay, now I'm going to take the learning <laughs> away and see what happens. Yeah. But, so could we use it with sensory strategies? Well, that's, I don't think so. I think what, but because I believe the idea behind those is that it's sort of a rewiring of the brain, or a physio change, right? Mm. So if you do the thing that then changes the brain, you can't make the you change go back. Yeah. So that single case would be, you can do like a multiple baseline across participants. So each person has varying baseline. Then you start to do this intervention. And so let's say if person A, B, C, if person A has 10 days, then they start and it changes. Then person B has 15 days, then they start and it changes. And those 10 and 15 days aren't the same. For instance, if I've done work in schools, we got to be careful because some event may happen in the school, like the bell system changed on that. So you would make sure everything's staggered so nobody has any concurrent changes. And if you see the the measure, so whatever, and then the first thing is like, what will this do for the kid and how will we know? And often they'll stop uh, hitting themselves. Okay, so if that changes only when the intervention happened for each person, then that adds strength. And the replication is not a reversal reversal. It's each new additional baseline person you put in adds more and more strength. And I've seen I've seen multiple baseline of like 50 people, which in terms of in size is at the size of a group design at that point could, could be done. Great. So let's jump to a study. Is that okay? Because we have been talking sure. here a lot about sensory integration because this is a, uh, it's the S word that keeps coming up in our podcast. <laughs> not, the, not the F word, but the S word. And um, I think, Josh, you would probably share, uh, you know, in, un- an understanding that in the behavioral field, you know, we tend to be a little bit skeptical about the word sensory because we just, you know, look at behavior in general and we don't sort of discriminate between different types of behavior. But, um, but in general, you know, behavioralists tend to uh, have the view that sensory integration sort of lacks what you would say evidence base and so there is a study that we um, we have been talking about and this is the study of I'm going to call it Pfeiffer et al 2011 study called and it looked at the effectiveness of sensory integration interventions in children with autism trying to establish the effectiveness of sensory integration as an intervention because at least to that point you know there was difficulties in consistency of interventions that could be described as sensory integration. So could you describe to us quickly what that study was looking to achieve? Sure. So they did, they compared sensory integration and a fine motor uh, treatment was their kind of control. And they were looking at, so, and this is, gets at, again, I, I'm very, I want to be really explicit when I'm asking, like, what will this do? Very, very specifically, because often I hear questions like, is sensory integration good for autism? And I'm like, I don't know. But if you want to say, does it reduce some sort of thing or does it increase some sort of a thing? Then I can start to talk about and, and that in generally. Stu- yeah. And in this study, Josh, this is a group design, right? What were they attempting to improve? So... That's a good question. I believe, I mean, that was, they were, I think, looking to treat autistic symptoms. Yes. Is kind of, is what they would, would do. And then, so they used, uh, they used 
the Vineland and uh, the Quick Neurological Screening Test, as well as the SRS, which are all kind of around, you know, symptoms of, of the ASD. So that was their their aim. They also added one of their measures was a goal attainment scaling. And so it's it was goal setting by the team. What's positive about it is that it was a goal setting process. So to some degree, they brought standardization because anytime I if I were to make any measure of mine, like goals achieved, I can manipulate that if I really wanted. If like there was some value for me to say this thing worked, I could make goals really easy. And then maybe for the control group, really hard. This gave them a standard model to walk through. So that that's one of the strengths was positive. So they took 37 folks, broke them into two groups and then gave either fine motor or the sensory integration. They did do treatment integrity checks, which means that they watched a session and made sure that the delivery met what they considered fidelity in terms of the intervention. That's a strength. A weakness was they didn't do much of it. Yeah. So it was, and they didn't how, do it. How much did they do? Was it like 18, 45 minute sessions? Is that right? Well, so they have 18 sessions of treatment. One of them would get an observation. So in our world, we'd want to see around a third. So we want to see six um, just to capture all that. So that would be uh, what they did. The other. So then they found out between the two groups that there were the sensory integration group made larger gains on those goals, statistically speaking. And then they also had reduction in autism symptoms according to those parent-reported instruments, the Vineland et al. One of the problems was that they didn't do any direct observation on in, in terms of did they actually count how many times this happened or how long or any of that. They also had some overlap between the directions that might have created some confounds in that regard. And I can't remember if this one, there's another uh, group study that I think came after this. And I can't remember which one. This one may not have been blinded. This one was blinded. Trying to look. Okay. Yeah. This one is blinded. The other one I'm thinking of three years later wasn't. So that's good. They di- What they did not do on this one, if memory serves, is I should have probably read it <laughs> like minutes ago, but um, they didn't die. They don't, they didn't verify diagnosis. So if if you're going to say I'm treating autism, but then you don't verify that your participants have it, you've, there's some issues around that yeah. if that's the goal. So that was the, I think the, one of the first, I think this one's pilot. And then another one came out, I think three or four years later, um, very similar. I would say it would be really cool is if we brought behavioral observation could really support some of this and, and shore up some of those strengths. And get clarity on the DV. To me, that's the big risk here is you've got parent report, um, subject like, and the scales are like on a negative two to a two, how did they do on this goal versus let's count, you know, if it was one of them was like brushing their teeth and it was like brushing their teeth for 15 minutes, negative two to two, how they do rather than saying, let's measure how long they actually brush their teeth for. So I think that's one of the things that behavior analysts could certainly be uh, support in that revolve if, if folks teamed up and studied this. Good. So that's maybe a good point to say. Let's just say Josh and OT came to you and said that they wanted, they're working with one of the, one of your kids and they wanted to trial sensory integration to improve certain behaviors. What are some, um, discussions you might have with them regarding data 
definition of intervention and then measuring response to intervention. What are some things that you might be able to share that, you know, would assist OTs measuring the effectiveness of their intervention? I would ask, my, my first thing would be, let's get the measurement tight. So yeah. what the DV is. And so I'd ask, can you, know, you just, what, for, the, what for, the you OT, for the OTs out there, Josh, a can dependent you, variable. Great. And, and can you put that in plain English for them? It's it's the thing that you hope to change Great. that you're measuring. Okay, so it might be so. reducing self injury. It might be correct more word utterances. It mm-hmm. it might longer attention at a table, less crying. Right, Re- all, any of those Redu- uh, reducing non compliance or okay, great. Right, right. And, and what if so. they're hoping to get improvement in multiple behaviors? Then I'd say we could measure. We that. can measure. That's it. Certainly fine. Okay. Yeah. Great. And so we can measure all of them. There's actually a des- I would say that sounds like a good design for multiple ba- uh, baseline across behaviors, and we could certainly now again with this you're going to be you can't put uh, well I guess it depends too if most sensory integration that when I work with folks it's a non contingent we don't say when the thing happens we're going to we say we're going to put on a time based schedule yeah. to avoid inadvertently cuz generally i will say things ot's do are fun well it's been kind of a, across the board yeah. my kids like going and doing ot it's super fun so we do want to make sure we don't inadvertently set up the only way you get access to that fun thing is by doing things we don't want so we do a lot of of time based Multiple baseline with time base wouldn't work so well be, uh, across behaviors because they're not contingent on the behavior. So I can't turn it on for this one and off for that. Yeah. If, on the other hand, we said when he hits, we're going to do this, we could put it across behavior. So those, that would be two ways that I would say that this is one thing we could do. The DV, the, we'd want to have real clear definitions and that when you look at it and I look at it, we both say yes or no, it didn't happen. So we're doing, we we're be, doing sensory integration or we're not doing sensory integration. It's very clear yeah. when we're doing it. Yeah. Right, right. And and what and this is where I would wanna be so I have seen behavior analysts debunk do a debunk study, which I'm not sure that was super valuable, but they can be certainly reinforcing. But they did that, but they delivered the sensory integration. Well the weakness there is maybe they didn't do it right. And so I think that's where you have to have collaboration of asking the expert, what does it look like? How do we know if we're doing it right? And make sure that's happening. Otherwise, I mean, if I say I'm doing sensory integration and I don't do it, and then I say, aha, and now it doesn't work, that's just because I was, now it's goofy. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Josh, that because we are kind of data driven individuals and therefore, you know, precise about the definitions we use, that some of the processes that we have to develop to meet those criteria? could be helpful. So for instance, like treatment integrity checklists to ensure that, you know, everybody is trained to deliver the intervention the same way. Is it you know, something that you think Althea could, you know, add to improve the sort of, uh, you know, the outcomes from research and then the ability to say that this is something that's effective? Do you think that our field has some, you know, I think you're absolutely right to that it's sometimes we won't not believe that these things are, you know, potentially have the ability to impact behavior. But our field does have some good processes that might assist in the implementation of these interventions for, you know, to get consistency and therefore prove the effectiveness of the intervention. Yeah, I think we definitely, we're nothing if not systematic about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of our, so absolutely in that regard. 
and then we run the risk. So there's always double-edged swords. We we can be we very systematic. We can also be rigid, and sometimes yeah. we can get a little focused on measurement in a way that we pick things that aren't really what's important because those are things we can measure easily. So I would say the challenge to the paper analyst and the value of the OT, there's some some stuff we want to change in life that's got this genesis quality of like, I can't say what that is, but I can say when it's happening or not. And we got to dive in and what is that? And I think that's where our field gets limited if we We'll shy away from the more fuzzy measures. And and I think we don't need to. I think we can say there are ways to capture some of that stuff that may be not super amenable to, to counting or whatnot. And so to me, I would say it will be great to have that, that back and forth of like, what I'm pretty good at when I have someone in front of me that wants to know about a change. I can peel back so I can get to like, ah, there's a measurable. Okay, let's take that. But the first step is kind of, you know, what's it look like? How would you know? And sometimes those answers don't seem amenable to measurement. And I think we need people giving us that information so we can start chewing on how to make it measurable. And, and that and it would be the, that collaboration would be better than what a behavior analyst might come up on their own. Because I have watched people select things to measure because they're easy to measure. And I was like, that doesn't seem like what you're really trying to change. And I think OTs would could hold us accountable to that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about something else and we got to get there so that would be to me a beneficial friction wow josh so much food for thought and you know i'm so proud of you i didn't have to use the pause button even once (laughs) with mandy and i it's like every bloody sentence we're like pause pause (laughs) so thank you for that i think um so much information here and so much uh food for thought as i said but we are going to wrap up now and hopefully we'll have you back because i want to talk more i think there's so much we can unwrap and i love how you really highlighted the fuzzy measures as you called it love that because that is what sort of happens that often when I talk to an ABA therapist they're like well yeah that's you know I don't know and I guess that would be called called a fuzzy measure so I'm glad you brought that to the forefront but we are now just going to talk about our next episode which is coming up and again thank you so much Dr. Pritchard for joining us our next Thanks for having me. topic is goal writing and teaching targets in OT and ABA respectively I think this is a great place for us to really come together and figure out you know are we really speaking the same language when we design these goals Mandy did you want to add any last words just really want to thank Josh there for just bringing up some really good issues and you know g- giving me a lot of food for thought actually in in how I work with OTs and um, I think there's a follow up um, podcast there Josh on a, a couple of things that you raised in particularly in relation to those fuzzy measures because I have done something very similar where we have quite a a broad definition of the intervention we're providing with lots of examples and non examples of of what's going to incorporate that fuzzy measure and I really feel like there's um, there's a whole podcast on that. So I just want to thank you so much for um, for taking this on and, um, yeah, really, really enjoyed that conversation. I think we have our title for one of our episodes, Fuzzy Measures. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it. brilliant. Thank you all for joining us. And remember, collaboration is where we need to go. Collaboration, oh, what is it? Hashtag collaboration over competition. That's what it is. See you next week. Bye from the Windy City. And hooroo from Devonville.